Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Gregory Copley, who is a historian and strategic analyst. He's worked at the highest levels of government around the world and is a member of the Order of Australia. He is the founder of Defense and Foreign Affairs and president of the International Strategic Studies Association. Do check out the previous interview we did with Gregory. I think it was last year. This time we'll be discussing his recent book, The New Total War of the 21st Century and the Trigger of the Fear Pandemic, as well as what he's working on uh, right now. Welcome back, Gregory. How are you doing? Wonderful and great to be back with you. And, uh, and congratulations on the incredibly pioneering work you do with this for this uh, channel because it's it really is unafraid to break new ground and well yeah that gets us into trouble so <laughs> we've been having uh, trouble with censorship from all kinds of platforms so uh, i guess i'm doing a, the the right job a good job so <laughs> uh let's get right into it then you know your your book and analysis is extremely serious and you know it, i i love your reading your material because it's it's very dense there's so much uh, in it and when i sit down to read your stuff you know uh, i take longer i i read it at a slower pace to because there's just so much there and you point out the very grave situation we find ourselves in that of a world experiencing peak population growth wealth uh what seems to be the end of the growth model that we've been experiencing for centuries and as this is going on there's a total war now between the great powers mainly US China to see who will set the agenda for the new model to come and maintain maintain or achieve hegemony uh, and then let's get the pandemic question out of the way you know you call it primarily a fear pandemic i personally do not qualify covid-19 as a pandemic by definition as from what i've uh, seen and 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 the guests that i've had on the mortality rate uh, seems to be more or less the same as as we've had in previous years and so you call COVID-19, quote, a crisis which was there to be wielded or taken up as the first example of a truly strategic information dominance weapon capable of determining outcomes on a global scale, end quote. So, you know, is COVID-19 itself primarily smoke and mirrors and a symbol and catalyst for this new total war? Well, yes, it was it, it was a weaponizable event uh, and the degree to which it was contrived as that, or whether People's Republic of China and a number of political parties around the world took advantage of it is, is questionable, whether they, uh, if you like, jumped on the bandwagon of it. But the, the whole, the fact that the title of the book is called uh, The New Total War of the 21st Century and the Trigger of the Fear Pandemic. It's a fear pandemic. It's not a medical pandemic, as you rightly pointed out. <clears throat> In fact, it, it's statistically unimportant historically. It's not going to create a, a, a massive bulge in a demographic statistics historically. However, we were at already at a point where we were at the end of our global population growth cycle, and that cycle having ended was about to, to lead us to a significant era of population decline globally, uh, but one which would be an erratic decline. It wouldn't be an even decline in populations around the world. India and Africa are still experiencing population growth and will likely continue to experience population growth at least for the next decade. Uh, but the, the population growth rates in both India and Africa are declining dramatically. So we'll soon reach apogee uh, in, in population growth, even in Africa and India largely because uh, of the impacts of wealth and urbanization. 
These are really critical factors in determining uh, how rapidly uh, populations uh, replace themselves or fail to replace themselves. Urbanization has always been synonymous to some degree with a transformation of wealth, either increasing it or just uh, transforming the way in which wealth is deployed. Um, but urban populations always have, uh, have lower reproduction rates than rural populations. So that's impacting Africa dramatically at this stage. So, um, so the, the great fears, if you like, of massive and unsustainable population increases in Africa are not going to be there. Yes, there's going to be a period over the next decade when uh, the populations of Africa are going to be in turmoil, largely because of uh, negative economic trends uh, and uh, urbanization and, and the like. But but that's that's to be expected. What we're at in right now, it's not just a global demographic transformation. It's the end of a great cycle of growth, not in, in all areas, in in terms of uh, the expansion or consolidation of empires, in, in the expansion of wealth, in the expansion of human intellectual progress, including you know, technology and the like. But uh, but also uh, we're coming to the end of uh, a period of that consolidation. We, we've spent the last 70 years in global terms in a defensive environment where great powers have been reluctant to engage each other in normal, formal, say, uniform uh, military confrontation. Part of that was the, the fear of escalation into nuclear conflict. That fear is now more or less past, and nuclear weapons are more or less past. They've gone back to being theater or tactical weapons by and large. Uh, so it's not the fear, of, if you like, of a global uh, conflagration militarily. Uh, it's because military confrontations are inherently very difficult to, to win. So what we saw was uh, a post-World War II seven decades of, uh, of consolidation of defensive thinking, status quo thinking. Uh, we, we saw militaries being, being essentially uncreative uh, in their deployments, in their operations. Their governments have, have tended to fight wars through proxies, through terrorism, through political means and the like, uh, and, and uh, to, to maintain the status quo and to incrementally move forward. What we're seeing now is the end of that cycle because as we see the collapse of the growth model, uh, we see the collapse of some superpowers uh, for, for either valid mismanagement reasons or because of uh, historical cycles of exhaustion. Now, then we see we, we, the world moving from this essentially status quo oriented defensiveness into a world which is now on the move again. It's dynamic. We're seeing a, a changing of, of, of global borders, not necessarily at this stage the, the borders of nation states, although that's happening as well, but we're seeing great changes in the spheres of influence of the great powers. Uh, so that, that means that everything is in flux, everything is dynamic. And we're seeing this move away from defensive warfare thinking to offensive warfare thinking. However, that doesn't mean that that um, most global leaders, even of great powers, are going to be uh, necessarily reckless. That there's still there's still a great fear uh, of the consequences of direct military action. So 
we're, we're seeing this move towards an aggressive, dynamic, offensive operation uh, into, um, into one which is conducted through a new form of total war. Now, we, we saw total wars historic throughout history. They, may be, they weren't really called total wars, but they, they often tended to be because uh, in early days, it was one society pitched uh, for its entire survival against another society. And on a small scale, we saw that happening time and again. Uh, but then we saw a, a great period where warfare was was a matter of uh, of monarchs fighting each other with small uh, armies, professional or mercenary or conscript armies, but it didn't affect populations dramatically uh, as much. Then we started to move with Napoleon into periods of total war. Napoleon never called it total war because he didn't need to. He was the one who was practicing it and he knew what he was doing and he he gathered together all of the elements of society, uh, the economic, social, uh, geopolitical, and military and industrial means to fight his wars against his, his rivals, which is why he was initially so successful. He was able to mobilize his war uh, from his entire base of the French Empire and, and carry it forward. And it took, it took some of his adversaries uh, a while to catch up with that and to mobilize accordingly. But, when, but by, the, by the time we got into World War One, where uh, at the end of which uh, General Ludendorff, the um, uh, essentially the the primary military leader of Germany in World War at the end of World War One, uh, he coined the term total war. But even Ludendorff himself didn't really understand what he was getting into. But he understood that he was engaging more and more aspects of a society uh, to fight the war because you had to mobilize your your comprehensive economic base, your industrial base, logistics and the like. And there were a number of people at that time who, who started thinking in, in total war terms. Uh, that was escalated uh, in terms of intellectual thinking by my old colleague, Dr. Stefan Bersoni, who wrote a book in 1938 called Tomorrow's War, which was about how societies mobilized economically uh, to, uh, to conduct their offensive operations. Then we saw World War II literally come into being as an evolution of World War I and on the, on the lines which Dr. Pasoni uh, outlined, which, which were profound. And we saw that World War II was much more uh, a, a engaging total society, one total society of the Allied powers against the Axis powers. Uh, there, were, there were no innocent bystanders in, in a sense in that, in that war. Now, with the advent of nuclear weapons, the move from World War II into the Cold War was almost seamless. And we, there are a lot of people say, well, the Cold War uh, wasn't really a war because uh, there, there weren't any great titanic clashes of armies in the field. The reality was that it was a, very much uh, an evolution of World Wars I and II, and it was a, a, an even more comprehensive total war because it did engage uh, an, an incredible range of other aspects of society other than the, the uniform military. And, and with the end of the Cold War, we and, and that in itself broke up, if you like, the geopolitical model, which had been prevailing under the United Nations uh, Agreement of, of 1945, uh, we, we started to see that the definition of the Westphalian state was less applicable and likely to fracture in the near in the near future, and of course that that is all that's now happened. 
the Westphalian model of nation states began in 1648 with the, the Peace of Westphalia after the Thirty Years' War. That's now, uh, which, which defined, if you like, the evolution of the state model and therefore the evolution of the interstate model of, of uh, diplomacy and dealing. Um, that, that's now literally at an end. Uh, so you, you had, if you like, 70 years where the, the, the signatories to the United Nations Charter, particularly the, uh, the uh, veto uh, members of the, of, the, uh, of the United Nations, the, they were the nuclear powers, essentially, other than the Republic of China. They were able to, to say, well, we, this is how we define the peace, just as the victors of the, of the Thirty Years' War defined the new international order. So the victors of World War II defined the uh, global rules-based order going forward. Now, that was great while the Republic of China was a member of the, uh, the Security Council with veto powers. But when that vote from the Republic of China moved to the People's Republic of China, who were, who were like a beneficiary of World War II, but, uh, but wanting to, to, to gather their own sphere of influence, they said, look, we're not, you know, we're not beneficiaries of the um, rules-based world order, uh, which is essentially uh, came to be dominated by the United States. We are going to create a new 30 years war, which will culminate in 2049 with the defeat of the United States. And then the new rules-based world order, the new quote, peace of Westphalia will be one defined by Beijing or by the Communist Party of China. Uh, and we will then define what is the rules-based world order. Uh, so this is a cyclical evolution. And we have to bear in mind that literally everything in history is cyclical. We see the, the growth and end of, of, um, of political and economic models, uh, having a lifespan uh, as um, Glob Pasha, the, the British general, said, you know, empires and civilizations generally have a lifespan on average of about 250 years, some longer, some shorter, some are able to reconfigure, get a heart transplant and relaunch the empire, if you like. Um, and so we, we, we see right now that the West, the United States in particular, is at a, at a break point. It either has to reinvent itself or uh, recognize that its, its era is over and that it will inevitably begin uh, to decline because of, of all of the factors which caused it to grow and become dominant. Societies like human individuals, of course, have, have predictable lifespans which start with birth, the acquisition of confidence, knowledge, and vigor, and they, they'll move into uh, capability, aggressiveness, and then gradually through the accretion of wealth and legislation will find themselves uh, bogging down in their own wealth, if you like, and, uh, and literally becoming unable to move as rapidly as societies which are not hidebound by you know, great senses of entitlement or uh, an overburdening of laws which make them inflexible. Uh, so that's where we are right now, literally, with the West. And uh, now that doesn't mean that this is an automatic recipe for the People's Republic of China to succeed because, uh, in fact, we, we see that the People's Republic of China under the Communist Party of China has itself 
moved in ways which uh, make it sclerotic, make it unable to uh, trust its own populace, um, which, is, which has some demographic problems of its own. But, but it can't, there's no like cohesion between the PRC population and the Communist Party of China. Uh, therefore, we're going to see difficulties in the PRC itself being able to survive as a great power and resurgent power. So you, you've got all of these factors where we're seeing natural decline automatically beginning to hit. And this began long before 2020, by the way. You know, we, we could see uh, it, literally at the end of the Cold War in 1990, you know, we could see that borders were going to have to change. Uh, power centers were going to have to change uh, simply because people were becoming complacent and not defending borders or they were becoming... Uh, the borders becoming vitiated and powers becoming uh, weakened by by complacency or by inefficiency. We saw even uh, over the last five or three years before the 2020 uh, hiccup point, uh, we saw uh, productivity decline throughout much of the West, for example. We also saw productivity decline in, in uh, People's Republic of China. We saw in about 2010, from 2010 onwards, for example, the People's Republic of China uh, begin to turn into uh, from economic growth to economic decline. And then you had in 2012, the arrival of Xi Jinping, who since, rather than reopening the economy even more, as, as Deng Xiaoping had done after the death of Mao Zedong, uh, what Xi Jinping did was to revert to Maoism, which was to close down the economy. So he inherited a bad situation and immediately set about making it worse, uh, which is why the PRC was desperate uh, to find other means to confront the West, and particularly the United States. That's why mm -hmm. it, you know, it made that point. If, if, we can't, if we can't defeat you by 2049 uh, based on our growth, we will defeat you based on the fact that we will ensure that the United States and its allies are unable to grow and are brought back uh, dramatically curtailed economically. Yeah, I want to ask about these these other means. You know, the, the total aspects to the total war, which, which you write about, and you seem to think that you know, for now, we're not going to go kinetic. Uh, you know, war between these different countries. But you know, you mentioned Napoleon. Napoleon once said that the politics of the future will be the art of stirring up the masses. In your book, you write, "quote." Crowds and mobs have always existed and have always had a receptivity to being captured and used. Uh, that is their nature, end quote. And so in your book, you also talk about hi this hybrid war um, using psychopolitical actions in conjunction with proxy warfare. And really, it's, it's as you say, it touches on economy, society, uh, religion. And with this advanced technology that we have now, you, you also write about ID, information, dominance, you know, social media. Our whole lives are being run now. Uh, on everything digital. And so this has all become, I, I think it, the point you make in your book is that all aspects of our life, um, we're literally in a war. And I think most people don't, don't even realize this. So could you talk a little bit more about, you know, this, th th these other ways that we see that we're experiencing war? Well, um, as we saw during the Cold War, most people didn't understand that they were at war simply because uh, people weren't getting drafted in, in, into uniform and being killed on the battlefield. We weren't getting these great battlefield reports. Yes, we were hearing about some foreigners being killed uh, who were, you know, allies of the United States, whether it was in El Salvador or in the Middle East somewhere. <clears throat> but the reality was 
that people in Western countries uh, didn't think that the war affected them. Um, it, it occasionally got out of hand when we saw the Russian population getting concerned about the Soviet involvement in Afghanistan, uh, and that did have a political impact at the end of cycle of the of the uh, uh, of viability of the Soviet Union. But the reality was we didn't think the Cold War was a war, and it really was. Just the same way today, we don't understand that we are in, engaged in, in a in a new total war, which was even more pervasive than the Cold War of the nineteen of the twentieth century. The new total war is even more amorphous and more total than was the Cold War, uh, because it now engages directly down into the lowest echelons of of society or the widest echelons of society through social media, through electronic media, through manipulation of imagery. And what was interesting was that if you you were the Communist Party of China uh, and you saw your greatest adversary, A, being the United States and B, specifically being uh, President Donald Trump, who was galvanizing the US to respond to to Beijing, uh, then Beijing or the Communist Party of China had to get rid of, of Donald Trump. Well, what better ally could they have than the Democratic Party of the United States, which also wanted to get rid of Donald Trump? So you, you, you saw that it was unwise, it would have been unwise for the People's Liberation Army to have been deployed in ways which were directly confrontational with the United States, because that would have triggered a, a, a fear response by Americans, whether they're Democratic Party people or Republican Party people. They would have said, uh oh, these are our enemy, we must unite to fight them. So basically, uh, Beijing or the Communist Party of China really worked to, to keep military confrontation at a minimum or at a, uh, at a totally obscure level and relied heavily on psychopolitical warfare, manipulation of US populations, the attempts to distort the elections in the United States, which they, they certainly did to an enormous extent. Uh, people worried about uh, Russian influence in the 2016 elections. It was it was a joke compared with what happened in 2020. This was a massive uh, interference by PRC in in the U.S. system, uh, in, both directly and indirectly, and uh, and it and it behoved the um, the opponents of President Trump in the United States to to go along with that because they saw that if they could get rid of Donald Trump, then they could build a world in which they could, uh, if you like, uh, treat with Beijing, you know bring tensions down, avoid the confrontations which President Trump was uh, was triggering, and they could literally calm things down. Well, what this did, of course, was gave an enormous breathing space uh, to the Communist Party of China, which was facing imminent ruin uh, as uh, under President Trump's uh, confrontation. So they, they bought themselves some breathing space. Um, that doesn't mean that, that Beijing now feels that it can deal as uh, an ally with uh, President Biden or the or the future administration as it evolves here in, in Washington, uh, but they know they've bought that breathing space. They have to then do something about it. The question is, uh, will that breathing space, in fact, buy the survival of the Communist Party of China? Because uh, they've they've actually made their lives even worse by uh, making the PRC economy less and less palatable to foreign investment. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative has run out of cash, so the attempt by 
uh, Xi Jinping in particular, to build a global supply chain uh, independent of the West, that's now disappeared. Uh, the PRC has, does not have control, for example, even of Central Asia, to get the new Silk Roads going across through to, to Europe and to the Middle East and Africa. Uh, it's a very tenuous supply arrangement that uh, both for imports and exports that Beijing has has uh, maintained. Whereas uh, Japan, Russia, and so on have built uh, new trans-Eurasian supply links, which are independent of the People's Republic of China. So the so the gains which PRC needed to achieve have, have evaporated. Even Pakistan, which now has nowhere else to turn but Beijing, has said to Beijing, look, we're not going to repay the loans and the Belt and Road Initiative structures building the ports in Gwadar and the rail lines up into the Karakoram Highway to, to link the Indian Ocean with mainland China. Uh, we're not going to repay those loans because there's nothing in it for us that doesn't help us. And what we see is India correspondingly recognising this, moving its forces into Kashmir as a pre preparation to cutting across that Karakoram Highway, cutting across a Pakistani-occupied area of Kashmir um, and literally cutting across from Indian-occupied Kashmir all the way across to Afghanistan. That would cut uh, the PRC off from its overland links through Pakistan down to the Indian Ocean. That's really profound. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, um, the PRC is, is working to rebuild its, its lost ties with Myanmar, why it's, why it's working to consolidate what gains it has in the control of, of ports in Sri Lanka and the like. So uh, the PRC is playing this game, but it's really doing so with limited funds. Uh, yes, it has built a great technological advantage. It's built offensive weapons, which can really damage the West and any any industry of, of uh, Beijing. But it hasn't been able to, de to develop economic or military defensive capabilities. Uh, and so the United States is now, was under Trump and will still continue to do so, is rebuilding its capability to conduct offensive warfare against the PRC and to a degree against anyone else, including um, the Russian Federation, uh, if, if necessary. Russia, in fact, is the technological pacing threat for the United States, not the PRC. But, but Russia has the potential to become a great ally of the West. It won't necessarily become part of the West, but it can be used, uh, if you like, or allied with to to limit the power of, of, um, of Beijing. And that process is already underway, as you've been discussing in your program. Yeah, I, I, I've noticed, as you mentioned, uh, I, I put together every week um, a long list of news, which I, I think kind of, for me, is like the most important stuff where you get a picture of the world. And I, I subscribe to a lot of newsletters uh, and, you know, one of them, uh, Klingendale, uh, the think tank out in, in the Netherlands, they used to have a Silk Road news section, which I would t take from and it's gone. Like there, there's no more real news or hype about about Belton Road. Um, I had another question for you, and I've been talking about this a lot because I feel it, 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 it affects me. And as well, a lot of listeners are interested in this subject. And I don't know where this is coming from but you know it, there, there seems to be this this threat of this this great reset you know uh klaus schwab fourth industrial revolution world economic forum and some of the proposals that they're making 
sound like some kind of totalitarian biosecurity states, uh, you know, like a technocracy, where it, it seems to be primarily focused on Western nations. And you talk a bit about in your book as well about uh, topics such as population um, warfare. And and so these some of these proposals for the Great Reset inc include these like uh, cashless systems, vaccine passports that restrict movement. And so it's like, uh, you know, um, the American government and European governments in Canada are trying to implement this against their own populations. So it's almost like th th they're moving away from uh, democracy, which is something you talk about in your book uh, as well. They're moving to control uh, their populations. Um, and this seems to be kind of like an initiative ideologically from the urban globalists uh, and but as well countries like china also want this sort of total uh surveillance and so you know I i'm wondering about your your thoughts you know what's going on with with this because it, it's it seems to be a strong move towards uh totalitarianism and in your book you also quote uh nietzsche and you say you know is this part of us becoming the monster in order to to, to fight the monster yeah well uh yes and no uh, yes, that's what we what we intend to do. When you go to war against uh, an aggressor, you literally have to become to match that aggression. So you you take on the attributes of your uh, attacker. But the reality is that we saw this evolution of society, and again, bear in mind that societies have lifespans, civilizations and empires. We saw the late nineteenth and early twentieth century as the peaking and twilight of the great monarchies of the world, whether it's in China uh, or in Europe. Uh, and what we saw under the monarchies was, in fact, a fairly laissez-faire uh, um, set of societies, by and large, uh, where there was really minimal controls on individuals. And you would argue that's because they didn't have the technology to control their societies. But they'd also, that was part of their maturing away from uh, totally hierarchical uh, uh, feudal societies that matured into uh, constitutional monarchies by and large, or monarchies which were very tolerant, uh, and there were great freedom of society. But they were becoming themselves exhausted. They were at their uh, end of cycle. Uh, they, were, they, were, they, they, were, they were tired and wealthy. Sounds familiar. Really we're tired and wealthy in the West today. So what happened was, what we saw was constitutional monarchies in the early 20th century started to give way to transactional republicanism, in which was disguised as democracy. In other words, give us, you vote for us and we will give you stuff. So it became very material, very short term, very, as I say, very transactional. Uh, and people found that by giving the vote, they surrendered their freedom. We, instead of having, uh, if you like, the, the what we regarded as, as rights under the empire, whether it's the British Empire, the Chinese Empire, the Japanese Empire, and the like, um, or the Russian Empire, th these started to be traded for. Okay, now we, you know, you don't have rights, but we have laws, and we will control you. So. Um, Whereas nominally people in, in empires were the subjects of the emperor, what we saw was that under democracies and republican democracies in particular, uh, people became who were nominally the, the the font of all power for the for the elected government. In fact, became 
totally subject to Republican government. Uh, and that, that included, by the way, the, the move towards pseudo-Republicanism in, in the United Kingdom, uh, only expunged after a great civil war, which lasted from 2016 to 2021, uh, when we, we start to see, if you like, the end of, quote, democracy uh, under the Republican form, uh, move, moving back to a sense of historical identity. Now, whether that will, that, that could well, in fact, result in the regaining of prestige by the crown in the United Kingdom, because it symbolizes um, unique qualities of, of Britishness. And that, of course, leads to something I know you want to do address to the the move by the United Kingdom to become once again central in the Kansas relationship with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, uh, with the four core, um, the three dominions and the United Kingdom itself, where they have a common head of state, albeit one which is defined separately in each of the four states. They have a common form of governance, uh, Westminster system. They, they have uh, common intelligence flow under the there are four of the five eyes intelligence accord. They have a common way of looking at defense. They would have a, a, a free flow of citizens for work and leisure between the four, the four countries. They would have coordination of defense, coordination of intelligence, coordination of economic policies and free trade agreements. Uh, and all of a sudden you have the, the British Empire once again reemerging from that old Republican model into one which is classical uh, empire, but with territories in the Arctic, the Antarctic, the North and South Atlantic, the North and South Pacific, the Indian Ocean, the Mediterranean. All of a sudden you have a truly global uh, strategic capability with uh, the fourth largest economy in the world, the third largest defense budget in the world, uh, and, and re really with the unique uh, territorial advantages of being able to deploy where in a way which no one else can. So these are, if you like, evidence of the, the great resets which we started to see emerging after the Cold War, but which have all hit, if you like, a, a peak transition with, with 2020. Uh, 2020 in itself was only significant in that it woke up everybody as a pivotal period Yes, it, it uh, damaged economies enormously, as we'll start to see as the 2020 GDP figures come out. Um, not that GDP is necessarily a very good measure uh, of economic performance, but it's anyone we've got uh, in many respects. So uh, we, we start to see this transform. At the same time, we start to see a decline in the United States, which may not be reversal in the, in the near term, because there's certainly no unified state uh, in the United States, and, and in fact, the polarization is becoming worse, not better. Uh, we're seeing a collapse in the People's Republic of China. Yes, we are seeing certain stability in Russia, but they have to go to the next stage if they want to uh, to, to galvanize themselves as a global power. And if they, if they want to become a global power, what does that mean to the world and to them? Uh, is, what are they going to do with it? Are they doing it for prestige purposes? Or so, you know, national identity purposes. Are they doing it for economic gain? And certainly, that, that's, there's an element of that in, in all of it as well. But we see the decline of the European Union, 
that means that as the European Union fractures, which it is already doing, we start to see revival in some of the key players, whether it's Italy or France. Um, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that while France, under President Macron, is, has been angry at Britain over certain things, but for short-term tactical reasons, the reality is that France and Britain have similar worldviews and are working very closely together on strategic issues, whether it's the development of defence technologies or joint deployment uh, of military forces into the Indo-Pacific to to uh, to basically contain the People's Republic of China. We see Italy ready to leave the European Union right now, as it probably Netherlands and, and the like and Poland. Um, but the question is, where do they go? The Italians are now have just sent their aircraft carrier over to the United States to, to test out whether they can work with the US on on uh, F-35s, uh, short takeoff and vertical landing fighters on their carrier. So we're seeing these interesting little uh, bits of evidence that people are going back to the, way, the old way of doing business. But the People's Republic of China, which has to be offensive if it is to survive and succeed under the Communist Party, they codified this new global environment and this new way of conducting total war. Uh, and they started doing that in 1999 when you had two senior colonels in the People's Liberation Army coming up with that uh, that study called Unrestricted Warfare, which has been was badly translated in its first iteration into, the, into English. But that, that whole concept has been uh, evolving dramatically since 1999 uh, and is being used as, as the matrix for the conduct of war today. The Russian government recognizes that they, that the PRC was onto something. And so the, the Russian government this past year gave the Russian general staff, military, uh, the power to literally conduct all, whole of society warfare, both defensively and offensively, uh, under the recognition that eight, sorry, they were going to 80% of all future conflicts in the foreseeable future were going to be non-military in nature. In other words, they were going to be information warfare, political warfare, population warfare, economic warfare, um, proxy um, insurgents and so on. The reality is that the Russians may have done themselves a disservice by keeping that power within the general staff because military people tend to think in terms of uh, military style uh, capabilities and responses, uh, and they, and, and as far as Russia is concerned, the reality is that it's probably not eighty percent of of warfare which is military or kinetic. It's probably ninety five percent. That doesn't diminish the role of the military. The military has to be there as an iconic deterrent force and and an expression of will and capability. Um, the the question is, once you you commit military forces to action, their strategic, iconic, deterrent value disappears. Then they become engaged in, if you like, the human level face-to-face -face conflict, whether it's aircraft going in or whether it's troops on the ground. The reality is that if you're using strategic assets like a national military or nuclear weapons or carrier strike groups, you commit those to war, then they are seen for what they are, which is just one more instrument in a, in a, in a war which can be taken out.
Um, that's why the US really lost massive prestige when it committed carrier strike groups, V1 bombers, V2 bombers and the like to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes, they were able to do a job, but the, the net result was people saying, oh, is that all it is? You know, the US has come and bombed us and we're still here. So big deal. Uh, the, um, uh, as the American song said, is that all there is? Well, let's keep dancing. So they're, uh, they're, they're, they're back, if you like, in, uh, uh, to square one. They've lost their prestige. So now, in a, in a, in the post nuclear age, the US is now trying to find ways to rebuild its global prestige. Trump was starting to do that, but that is gone by the board. And so now the US military is going to have to rebuild its capability at a, if you like, at an obscure level. It'll rebuild, it'll build its capabilities for offensive hypersonic weapons, uh, information dominance warfare, uh, and those sorts of things. But these, uh, don't have the great prestige value that some of the big weapons of World War II and post-World War II had. Uh, so the, the process of the U.S. rebuilding its prestige uh, is going to be much more difficult and slow than Washington would like. And it's, that's made worse by the fact that Washington itself is at war with itself. Mm-hmm. The, the, the United States, uh, like People's Republic of China, finds that its greatest enemy is itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and if you like, the, 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 the great successes in the coming decades uh, are going to come from societies which stop fighting themselves and start unifying to, to, to expand their capabilities and influence. And maybe if we can get you to peer ahead a bit more into the future. So, you know, um, I heard that you're writing, uh, a new book, uh, it sounds like on, on a new age of Empires, you mentioned the resurgence, perhaps, of the old British uh, Empire. You, um, I seem to interview you every time right before you're going to publish <laughs> uh, a, a book. Uh, you, so you mentioned the old Westphalian um, nation-state model kind of dying. And so, you know, what will be going forward, the new format uh, of government? It seems to be kind of like a, well, like an EU type thing, like a regional maybe regionalism or coming together in some cases and, and in others splitting apart. So, um, and maybe, maybe we see one example as well with what, what Turkey is doing. If you can mention as well, Turkey, like they seem to be building a new kind of Ottoman, neo-Ottoman empire. They're, they're all the way out, um, heavy influence uh, in Kazakhstan, w- which makes sense because they have, they share that same history and culture. And then out in Armenia, Azerbaijan, going in through Greece into Europe. I mean, they're all over the place. So tell us uh, a bit more about, What's going to happen to the nation states, you know, re- regional integration and this new age of empire and, and your upcoming book? Yep. I, I don't see uh, that we're going to see a, a growth in, in regionalism uh, to the extent that we will see uh, a new regional bloc replacing the European Union or, or the like. Um, I, see, I think what we're going to go back is to core identities. And we see core identities in a number of places around the world. But we, we, the Nabataean Empire ha- had an identity and it just disappeared and it's not coming back. Um, President Erdogan in Turkey thinks that he can regalvanize Turkey around uh, uh, Ottomanism or neo-Ottomanism or pan-Turkism. He may be able to, but like uh, Xi Jinping, he's destroyed the economy to do so. He's he went precariously into a 
uh, into uh, overextending uh, Turkey, and, they, and I think that they will actually implode before they reach liftoff point uh, because of because of Erdogan's uh, grandiosity. He's you know he, he thought he could do it by uh, a policy of, of uh, no enemies. Well, in fact, he has turned literally everybody into enemies. He certainly hasn't gained um, influence over Central Asia in the way that he thought, except in the case of Azerbaijan, which became dependent on them in the recent wars to resolve, if you like, the, the stagnant uh, or frozen conflict around Nagorno-Karabakh and around the uh, Armenian occupation of parts of Azerbaijan. But apart from that, uh, yes, the Central Asian states are happy to take some money from, from Turkey, and, uh, and the like, but but does that buy Ankara any allegiance from Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyz Republic, or Uzbekistan, or Tajikistan, and the like? Uh, the answer to that is probably not. Um, we saw, for example, uh, the Uzbek government is is talking about reasserting the the autonomy of the five core uh, Central Asian states, uh, and certainly the. Uzbekistan has taken the lead in that. And Uzbekistan's latest move also includes uh, a move away from both Russia and the People's Republic of China. And they're looking at uh, uh, translating, if you like, the Uzbek language, not in uh, away from expression into Cyrillic, but they're not doing it into uh, an Arabic or Persian um, uh, language structure, which, which Erdogan would have advocated. They're moving to a Roman script. So that's that's quite interesting because the Central Asian states see Turkey as, you know, a small part of their identity. Um, they don't regard Turkey as being a truly Turkic nation, uh, which is quite interesting, uh, whereas Turkey thinks that they are the grandfather of, of the Turkic peoples of Central Asia. Uh, the people of Central Asia, as you know, think of Turkey as being a, some uh, some half-breed stepchild of the Turkish people uh, because only 14% of the Turkish population is actually Turkic. So you've got this situation. So Turkey, yes, has become important as a gateway from Central Asia and the Caspian region over for energy supply over into Europe. And it, but what the Central Asian states are attempting to do is to create their own unique capability and then drive southward through a piece in Afghanistan and and then providing overland links either through Afghanistan through and Pakistan to the Indian Ocean or eventually when things change through Iran down to the Indian Ocean and that would give Central Asia complete autonomy from both Russia and, and the People's Republic of China uh, and enable if you like a, a, a totally transformed Eurasian concept concept so instead of being one linked east to west it would be divided into striations from you know, the Pacific coast to the Central Asian coast to the uh, uh, European side. Uh, and yes, there'd be cross-fertilization, but but there, there would be, if you like, a significant breakup in the dominance of the Eurasian landmass. Now, President Trump understood that and worked uh, with uh, the, the president of, um, of Uzbekistan to help galvanize the Central Asian alliance. That's why he, he went on in... Uh, uh, two or 18 months ago, he, he went on uh, Thanksgiving Day. He went to the, visit the U.S. troops in in uh, Kabul, 
a day before the Central Asian summit of the five presidents took place. And um, what Trump was trying to say was, we are going to deliver to you a fairly stable Afghanistan. We are going to create a, a peace process so that you can build the railway lines south from Tashkent across into Afghanistan and then over uh, into the Pakistani railings or over in, over, not yet in, through the Iranian links. But that really was the key. So uh, what President Trump was trying to do was something which no one in America picked up on or wrote about, but it was Trump understanding that if the Central Asian bloc becomes coherent economically and strategically, then uh, the threat from the People's Republic of China and, and Russia would, would be lessened. Uh, and it would enable Russia uh, to, to deal separately with the Central Asian bloc and not have to fear so much uh, the People's Republic of China, because clearly Xi Jinping threatened uh, the Russian Federation in the Far East in the past year as well. The fly in the ointment in all of this, of course, is that the Indians are likely to go somewhat crazy under Prime Minister Modi and move across uh, to, to cut Pakistan off so that they would gain access to Afghanistan directly and, and India would uh, hope that the rail links would go Tashkent, Afghanistan, and then over into India and down into Indian Ocean ports. And that may happen, but um, but right now it's it, what India is proposing would be highly uh, destabilizing and, and very um, short term in the, in, the, in the strategic thinking. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a, an interesting uh, evolution. We're seeing a, a totally totally new framework of how states and empires uh, rebuild. Uh, we're seeing that in Africa as well, and in the Middle East. Uh, in Africa, uh, the old stricture of the Organization for African Unity that colonial borders must remain sacrosanct. That's gone. The African Union, which is, has become in the last two years almost toothless, uh, nonetheless says that we expect every African border to change in the coming decades or two. And that's, that's already starting to happen. Uh, we're, we're starting to see wars take, uh, reemerge, which are going, and by the way, coups against the government, which are going to occur in Africa which the United Nations will have zero impact on. The great powers uh, of Europe, the United States, Russia, are not going to be able to influence or chastise any party or government for, or, or military from seizing power and changing borders. There's going to be very little will in the international community to uh, send peacekeeping troops to stabilize the situation, to be able to effectively uh, if you like, browbeat someone like President Buhari of, of Nigeria into changing the way he does business. So what we're seeing overall, not just in Africa, but globally, is we're seeing this period where, uh, where everything is in flux. The age of democracy and transactional democracy and republicanism ending. Democracy, as we knew it 50 years ago, is already gone. It's unlikely to come back in the short term, it will always come back sooner or later because it's a democracy is a byproduct of imperial wealth. As countries become bigger and wealthier and more secure, they start to allow uh, privileges and rights and entitlements to flow down to the population, including voting. So democracy then arises. 
that it's not the democracies that create wealth, it's the wealth that creates democracy. And when the wealth starts to go, and it is now starting to go, we see a reversion to more autocratic forms of governance, or not necessarily autocratic, but iconic and, and galvanizing forms of governance. That's why a number of years we've said, look, the irony is that although Republican societies have, have said, well, the age of, of kings is gone, the age of emperors is gone, the reality is that it's actually coming back again and it will have its day in the sun again. And then as the world rebuilds and, and restabilizes and gets wealthier again, then, of course, things will relax again, democracies will reemerge. This has been going on for uh, as long as there's been recorded human history. I think that's a great place uh, to end it as we've just about run out of time. Um, I think that there's there's some optimism there. So um, where I'll put all of your links in the description. Where would be the best place for people to follow uh, your work? Well, uh, www.strategicstudies.org or, and, the, and the International Strategic Studies Association has a page on uh, LinkedIn, for example, where people can uh, see some of our reports. Um, of course, through the strategicstudies.org website, they can get access uh, to the ability to buy some of our books and subscribe to our monthly journal. We also do run a thing called the Global Information System, which is only for government subscriptions around the world. And that, that, that's got about 200 field collectors worldwide gathering data, as they've been doing with us for about 50 years, into a central source where it's analyzed. And we, we start looking at national trends on 287 countries and territories worldwide. And we also then do regional and global trend analysis um, to, to hopefully enable uh, government leaders to make more uh, uh, long-reaching um, policy decisions. Not that many people are interested in long-range policy decisions. They, they keep saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting a fire right now. So the urgent will always take precedence over the important. Mm -hmm. And I, I would definitely recommend uh, people uh, get your book. Uh, I, I, I read the last one, Sovereignty in the 21st Century. Fantastic. It's, it's timeless. I mean, you, you read that and you'll, ha you'll have an idea of what's going on uh, now and, and going forward for years to come, as well as the new book, The New Total War of the 21st uh, Century and the Trigger of the Fear Pandemic. I think I got that right. And thanks for being back on Geopolitics and Empire. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity.